Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the Phoebe Pod. This is episode number 35. Thank you to everyone tuning in so far. I am Esther and as usual, I'm here with my co-founder and bestie, Liz. This week, we are chatting with someone who I love very dearly, my sister, Annie Kewen. Annie is a passionate feminist who is studying towards her PhD in gender studies. Her honors paper looked into the genocide of indigenous women in Canada and the US and delved into New Zealand's history to see if these same atrocities happened in New Zealand to indigenous Maori women. Annie is extremely knowledgeable in the history of the feminist movement, and we want to pick her brains today to better understand the history of oppression against women and where we are today. Not only is Annie an amazing academic and advocate for equal rights for all, but she is also an incredible runner herself, having run for Stony Brook University in the States, won multiple national titles and medals, and hit some very quick PBs on the track. Thank you for joining us, Annie. We're so excited to learn from you today. How are you? What's been going on? I'm good. Um, Yeah, just finished up uh, my honours at uni and hopefully going to start my PhD sometime soon. But yeah, doing good. How are you guys? (laughs) Whereabouts are you based at the moment? I'm living in Auckland at the moment. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, going to Auckland Uni, so based in Auckland. Also, Annie's now the, the full-time caretaker of Squid and Winnie, our family. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're very happy that Annie is there. <laughs> amazing. Annie, do you want to just tell us a little bit more about yourself, your running history, and then dive really deep into your study history? Yeah, sure. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm Esther's sister, as she mentioned. Um, And we have one older sister as well. We all grew up in Auckland together, very into our running from young age. So we were all running, right? It's just since we were about seven or eight or something. Yeah, yeah, really into it throughout high school and then got the opportunity to go and run in the States for Stony Brook in New York State. So uh, went over there in 2010 and finished my degree over there and got to run uh, in the NCAA. So that was very cool. Um, was there with some other Kiwis as well. And that is where I got my um, undergrad degree in women's studies and political science. So that was done in 2013. And I decided after about eight years of working in sort of social, social service jobs, um, social justice jobs, to go back to university uh, last year and start my honours so that I could head into a PhD. And that's a bit about my history, yeah. That's awesome. And then why, why did you get into gender studies and, and what are you hoping to understand through your PhD and beyond? It's a very good question. Um, what actually happened was I had a different major. My major was political science and history and I was finding myself really bored in my in the history classes, just not, it just didn't really capture me 
um, you know, it was interesting enough, but just wasn't really uh, setting a fire in me, I guess. And then I did one one class that was actually a history um, and women's studies cross-disciplinary class. And I just remember being really fired up by it and finding it really, really interesting to analyze um, a historical time through the lens of gender and how gender played out in what happened. So it was that day that I went to the office, to the admin office at the uni and changed my major. So it was really, um, really quick. Sometimes you just know that something is the right choice. And I definitely, I never, re I never looked back. I never questioned how quickly I chose to do that. And um, yeah, I just find it really, really interesting to, to look at things that we think we understand about history and the world and that sort of thing through the lens of gender and race and ethnicity, class, sexuality, all those sort of different lenses and analyze them in different ways. And so that's really what I, the passion that got me into gender studies. And at the same time, I think I've spoken to Esther about how it, it's a really analytical field, but it's, it's got real consequences, real world attachments. So even though you might be analyzing something, you know, a lot of academia can be really like highbrow and abstract and kind of you're wondering what the point is. But with gender studies, there's very real um, reasons why you're doing it because we're trying to make the playing field more equal. So that's probably where my passion comes from it because it combines theory and all the, you know, using your brain, but um, applying it to things that are going to have a real impact. Mm. That's so cool. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're obviously and so, super passionate about what you're doing. That, that passion comes from your own experiences or like, what do you think has made you so passionate about social just, justice? It's a good question. I think growing up, I always was, uh, I guess, had a lot of um, empathy for others and always wanted to, wanted to help wanted to help people. I wasn't sure how or, or where I'd go with it. And I guess that's what gender studies, when I, when I discovered it, it kind of combined all of that for me. So yeah, I just became really passionate about, I suppose gender studies was the way that I learned a lot about the inequality, different inequities in the world. And um, that really fired me up to try and, to try and change it, I guess. I mean, as the younger person, I thought I could change the whole world. I think a lot of us feel that way. <laughs> but um, as I've gotten older, I, I don't think I can completely change the world, but I can definitely use my time on earth to have an impact. Yeah, and it just, it makes me, I guess it, it put it simply, it just makes me mad that there's so much inequity in New Zealand and globally and I don't want to sit by and, and let it happen without doing something about it, looking at it and revealing it. So, yeah. So exciting. And I like, this is why I'm, we are both so excited for this conversation because I think a lot of people do just kind of like know that their inequalities are there, but just accept them and move on. And I think mm -hmm. uh, all three of us are super passionate about like making change and it's only going to come from having these conversations and people like yourself are actually diving deep into the research and understanding the why. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to jump into this combo. <laughs> yeah, we, we obviously, you know, you're an expert in this field and you have so much knowledge. So 
I think today it'd be so cool to pick your brains a little bit deeper and and maybe we can start with you know the history of womanhood and oppression I know that's a massive thing so you know maybe Mm -hmm. points along the way but um you know the success and progress so far so maybe if you can tell us about some key times in history that women have banded together to make change and, and how they did it yeah so I mean the history of you know pushing for women's rights globally has been it's very it's really different across um different regions and that sort of thing um but a lot I mean we can't even though the U.S. we're all pretty unhappy with the U.S. at the moment. Um, we can't deny the impact that they have on on social movements, and they did have have quite an impact when their um, feminist movement started um, globally. So there's a few different time frames of the feminist movement, and the earliest one is usually called the first wave of feminism, the first wave feminists, um, and that was really kind of more the suffrage movement. So in New Zealand, we had our own movement for the right to vote, which was passed in 1893. So um, Kate Shepard and women like her uh, secured the right to vote for Kiwi women. And actually, we were one of the countries that, one of the few countries that the right to vote was given to Indigenous women as well at the same time. So that's really interesting, I guess, feature of New Zealand history. Um, But in the States, yeah, it started with suffrage um, in a lot of places as well, UK as well, and then moving on to second wave feminism in the 1960s and 70s. That's kind of the more recognisable feminism that we we know from history. So it was the big protests, the bra burning, the women being just unhappy with the conditions that they were being forced to accept, I suppose. So, yeah, the US had a big impact across the world in terms of movements, we kind of followed suit as well. And New Zealand had a lot of the same protests, I guess, same timeframes as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's hard to break it down into like a short history, but... I think like with the feminism, you know, with the word feminism, it has such a such bad connotations. And it's interesting when you actually look up what it means, it just means like equal rights pretty much. Mm-hmm. And why do you think there's such bad connotations with the word feminism? I know, you know, you touched on like the bra burning. Was it something to do with the second wave? No. So I, I did, it, it's not actually, I did my um, undergraduate, we spoke, we had, we'd had to do a short thesis on something at the end of our undergraduate degree. And I did my mine on the word feminist and feminism and why, why people don't like the word so much. Um, and it's actually, you can trace it all the way back to the first uses of the word. So it, the reason people are afraid of the word feminist is essentially is, is patriarchy and, and misogyny because the word, the first kind of um, definitions of the word that were seen in like media and that kind of thing uh, were like cartoons of women with beards and like women like standing over their husbands and men in, men in aprons and men in dresses and this sort of thing, like there was such a fear that this whole feminist, this new feminist movement was going to completely topple over like the current social order. So it's actually, it's actually based in, in patriarchy and fear of change. Um, so people, people have had that fear of feminism since, since its inception. It's not that people think it's the bra burning thing and like, you know, women cutting all their hair off and all these silly fears that we think we have, but 
it goes way way deeper than that I feel like we have a fear of change yeah. yeah I feel like it's definitely changing I remember we held an event in Auckland maybe both of you were there yeah. probably about five or six years ago for International Women's Day and I remember standing up the front there must have been about 30 or 40 women there and I asked who considered themselves a feminist and I swear only about five people put their hands up because they were so afraid of like being put in this like weird bucket of being a feminist standing up against men and how that might be like seen by other people but nowadays I feel like a lot more people are like accepting that they're feminists and being proud that they're feminists and the best thing is when you see men who are feminists you know and like knowing that we have the support from them as well is it's pretty powerful when it comes to sport obviously sport is still like a big issue for women's rights and equality the gender pay gap in professional sports still sits around that 80 to 83 percent in favor of men and it doesn't really end there you know when we think about sponsorship deals and opportunities and media coverage and so on it's like massively skewed towards men why do you think sports is so far behind and what has the progress been like today? I think sport is one of the last sort of vestiges of, of patriarchy because it is so has historically male dominated. So I think if we can really crack that and get female or women athletes paid and relatively the same as men, it would be a really big deal because it's, it's such a male dominated area and it's, there's a social understanding that men watch sport and like sport and they watch other men play sport. So I think in a way we kind of, um, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy a little bit because we have this idea that, that, oh, men don't want to watch women play sport. It's not as interesting. It's not as, they're not as fast. They're not as powerful. And so we, we fulfill our own prophecy because then we go, okay, we're going to pay them less because it's less interesting and there's less viewers. And so we just continue this little, you know, self-answering cycle that less, and so less people do watch and less people are invested and women are earning less and nothing changes. So um, I think it's a fallacy. I think women's sport is just as interesting. Personally, I find it more, more interesting, but <laughs> I think it's, it's not, it's not the truth. And as more and more women get involved in watching sport as well, enjoying sport and watching women athletes succeed, um, that will have an impact too. Um, we just need to change this narrative that men are the ones watching and consuming sport and they just want to watch other men play sport. I don't think that um, that's necessarily the truth anymore, but obviously things like pay and that sort of thing take a long time to change, even if the social, like a social norm has already changed, it takes a long time for it to like, filter down into things like what people are getting paid and how much we see it on TV and that sort of thing. But yeah, we really need to break the, break the cycle, break the idea that it's men, men watching and men playing because it's not true. <laughs> yeah. I find it so frustrating because it's like, I think it's like in the US, 4% of sports media coverage is on women and 96% is on men. And I'm like, if I saw that stat and I worked at one of the um, TV companies, I would literally be like, sweet you as a reporter you go find 50% of sports on women and then 50% on men and that's now what you have to do like I don't understand mm -hmm. why it takes so long it frustrates mm -hmm. me it's like it's literally someone just needs to decide and tell people that's mm -hmm. now what they need to do it's that again like comes down mm -hmm. to fear of judgment and fear the risk mm -hmm. that you're going to be taking by doing that because those media channels will be like well if we put women in front of our tv yeah. screens no one's going to watch it which is ridiculous because people will watch it. 
yeah, it's that self-fulfilling prophecy. It's that idea, you know, if you put 4% of women's sport on TV and then you go, oh, well, there aren't that many fans of women's sport because nobody's seeing it. Yeah. So they're, they're answering their own question, you know? It's, if we change the amount of attention we're giving women's sport, the, the viewers and the fans will, will follow. But we're answering our own question and putting women on the back burner, which sucks. But And I feel yeah. like if one of those, you know, companies did that, they would make such a name for themselves and I guarantee their viewing would go up. Like literally they are shooting themselves in their foot. But yeah, it's hard to Well you think about change. locker room in New Zealand, the women's sports media channel and I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes one of the leading sports media channels in the country mm. because women are so excited to see, hear, and support other women, you know, and grow female sport going forward as well. So mm. hopefully the world follows on from what little old New Zealand is doing. <laughs> Definitely. Hopefully, and yeah. You kind of touched on it a little bit there, but do you have any other ideas about how we can continue to push for equality in the sporting arena for women? Well, I think definitely, um, yeah, visual, you know, attention and media and that sort of thing is, is major. I think in, New, in the New Zealand context, we have a really big problem with focusing on rugby and cricket. And I mean, the irony is that our women rugby players and cricket players are insanely good. So it doesn't follow why we're only showing the men. But if we can broaden the base of sports that we're covering as well, um, I think it will give more attention to women because women are playing you know a, a huge variety of other sports and they may be concentrated in different sports that we're not we're not paying attention to and then I think just leading the way in, in terms of pay we really need to I mean aside from rugby you know you're, you're not really looking at getting, getting paid a whole lot in New Zealand to be a professional athlete especially as a woman so finding a way to take young young athletes who are just enjoying sport and want to take it further finding ways to support them financially and and putting structures in place that we can look after them especially women keep them keep them safe keep them healthy without them needing to be destitute to pursue their sport I think that would be a major because if we can get healthy really talented athletes into the sport itself it will grow the fan base and it will grow the interest, I guess, as well. Yeah, and it all comes down to that, like, you can't believe unless you see it. And for a lot of those young athletes that are women succeeding and making, you know, enough money to live off by playing sports. So it needs mm. to change from the top, but then hopefully we can do that through the stuff we do. I think, yeah, I think media is, is the, the major one with it because if, like I said, you're fulfilling your own, prophecy by not showing women's sport and then saying well there are no fans we have to change that first I think we want to take it back to the patriarchy and just dive a little bit deeper into it why do you think women are so oppressed and have been so oppressed for so long like obviously it's to do with the patriarchy but how has that shaped the world that we live in as women today and can you give us a little bit of information around like how it kind of all started Mm -hmm. so the patriarchy, even though it's, it shapes so much of the world today, has not always been like the reality. So there are lots of different cultures around the world where that has not been the way that society has been structured. So if you especially look at Māori culture, certainly you can't call that 
a patriarchy definitely had a gender played a different role but I mean there were women chiefs they had a very communal way of doing things women were involved in hunting gathering all sorts of different things and the focus was more the community and 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 taking care of each other and gender it certainly wasn't like a hierarchical structure like patriarchy so Maori culture is one example but there's plenty of others indigenous cultures around the world that that weren't structured that way and I think even the ones that had a split of labor in terms of women having children and gathering vegetation and that and that being their sort of role in, in society and men going out and you know hunting and that's that kind of thing um, a lot of historical societies that were structured that way they saw that the, that division of labor is really equal so the women's roles were were highly valued and seen as really sacred to the continuation of the community so I'd say when we became um, agricultural societies and we settled into homes and started farms and that sort of thing I think that's really when stuff started to change in terms of the the development of patriarchy because someone had to be at home to look after um, everything going on there because home was now a fixed place so I guess once you add in that kind of became like the social norm and then religion was added in on top of that and it kind of became like codified into social behavior so it went from women having you know completely varied roles across the world to to this idea that they needed to be in the house having kids and cleaning and looking after everything at home. So that's, I suppose, yeah, the advent of agriculture was really where patriarchy kind of took hold and then religion became the means by which it was spread and made to be the, the norm and the thing that you had to do, I suppose. And then colonization obviously spread religion across the world, spread rather Christianity across the world and spread patriarchy and because the Western world has had such a horrible impact globally, many societies now are patriarchal because they've taken on the taken on those norms because they've been colonized and those sorts of things. So yeah, I guess that would be my view of how it's spread. But in terms of how it affects us now, I mean it affects everything. I think you can't think of patriarchy without making sure that you mention that it's white supremacy as well patriarchy is inherently white supremacist so it's the structure by which we uphold everything everything socially that you know in terms of valuing whiteness and valuing maleness I suppose everything is structured on that paradigm now so trying to get out of it we have to unravel a lot a lot needs to be undone and redone yeah. I'd love to just like go back to the start again, like understanding the religion piece and the colonization. But do you think like physiology has much to do with the patriarchy and the way that men are obviously built to be stronger and bigger and be able to lift more and carry more? And women obviously have menstrual cycles and periods and have babies. Do you think that has like kind of added to building what the patriarchal society looks like today? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think that women 
especially having babies. That's a really big factor, I think. In terms of why globally men were placed as you know, more valuable in that um, equation, I'm not really sure. But I guess the idea that if you're, if you're having babies all the time, yeah, your value as a worker is much lower than, than a man's. And so, you, again, I know I brought in white supremacy just before. You have to look at patriarchy as um, a capitalist project as well. It's a labour project. So having men out in the workforce and women at home having kids allows the labour market to, to run smoothly. So I think there's an element of, um, yeah, there's an economic element in it as well. But definitely, I think um, women being the the people that are having the kids and yeah, the demonization of menstruation and all that sort of thing is definitely has definitely been a big influencer of why we now live in a patriarchy for sure. Makes me so annoyed. It's like all made up. Like <clears throat> capitalism is like to the extreme is so bad and mm-hmm. caught in the midst of it because we have babies and we are taken away from work when really having babies and having a family is more important than making money. But we are ruled by the fact that we have to have money because we can't mm-hmm. have life if we don't have money. <laughs> life is value, you know, and yeah. we're the ones that create life. Exactly. Like it's like so mm-hmm. and it makes me so annoyed, but it's just so, it's so good to be aware of it. And there's lots of, um, there's a long history of, of socialist feminists as well, Marxist feminists who've written about, um, economy and labor and that the relationship to, it has to gender and and having babies and a really like amazing um, point that they've written a lot about is that women having babies is critical to the continuation of a capitalist labor market because babies are going to grow up to be adults and they're going to grow up to either be baby carriers or workers so it's it's all heavily linked into the capitalist project of continuing economic growth and and greed Mm. wow and that that's why when you say it's all so linked it's not just like let's just make things equal there's like so much more to it it's so complex and that that's why you can't you can't um anyone who's talking about feminism and gender if they're only talking about gender they're missing so many elements of it because, you know, the the role that gender and race and your economic class and all of that has, the historical role it's played in the way the world looks now is so complex and so interlinked that yeah, you can't really, you can't really separate them and it gets very complicated if you try to. And a lot of people like try to understand it from their own point of view, I think, and don't really realise like even this morning I was saying to my boyfriend like, knowing your privilege as a man just like knowing your privilege if you have white skin is so important even though you might feel like you're like he's a very strong fan of ours you know like he's very female supportive but like still understanding your privilege as a white male in a world you've grown up and that's been built for men by men knowing that's so so important definitely it's actually that's a massive part of why it, of history of feminism as well is is a very racist history, unfortunately, because, you know, starting with suffragettes, the idea that they wanted the vote for, for women, uh, I should say that they wanted the vote for white women because one, it was more palatable, it was easier for them to get that passed 
and in government than it would be to to fight for the right um, for black women and indigenous women to vote as well. And then also, yeah, the elements of racism and white supremacy were heavily involved. So when you're talking about the history of feminism globally, it's been very, very racist as well. Um, a lot of the first wins for feminism were for white women specifically. So sad. So yeah, knowing your privilege, knowing knowing where you stand, yeah, is a big part of it. Yeah, that's so sad because you can't really call yourself a feminist if you're not fighting for all women's rights. Like you can't just group it into white women getting somewhere. It needs to be for, mm-hmm. and that would have made it a hell of a lot harder because I'm pretty sure you know, slavery would have been involved then and you would have had to overturn that to then have change for women, um, for all women. It's really interesting, actually, we, Liz and I listened to a podcast about female hormones on Rich Roll's podcast and we'll put that in the show notes. It's a really good one and it's got lots of um, really good information about like female hormones and the way our bodies work. But it said in the podcast, the only animals in the world who go through menopause are humans and four different types of whales <laughs> so there's only five animals in the whole entire world that go through menopause and all of those animal societies are matriarchal societies apart from humans mm. and when I say humans I say in quotations as in the ones you know you, you were talking about indigenous uh, cultures that weren't so much a patriarchal there was more equal equal rights but I just find that so interesting um I don't actually have a question for that, but I just wondered what you think about like, you know, like a matriarchal society versus versus a patriarchal. Yeah, I mean, there are cultures and societies in history that um, have had that structure based around a woman's biology. So it's called bioessentialism or bioessentialist feminism. So it's based around, it's a feminism based around your anatomy and your ability to reproduce and that sort of thing so there have been critiques modern critiques on this sort of thing in terms of trans women and that sort of thing not having the same anatomy but deserving obviously the exact same rights but there is still value I think in learning about in terms of I'm thinking particularly in Native American society some of them had a very kind of the sacred feminine sort of setup in terms of their matriarchy so they were matriarchal because women were seen as having a sacred and spiritual almost divine ability to create life so they were seen as the leaders as the foundation of everything because they were able to they are able to do that and so I still think there's I mean there's huge value in that idea and sometimes we do forget how incredible and just beyond our understanding it is that women can just or people with uteruses can just create new life. It's quite amazing. So we have had matriarchy sort of based around that in history. Crazy. Well, we want to move the subject over to America and touch on what's been happening over there recently with the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. We only actually just found out and pretty shockingly found out that only recently in Queensland, where we are at the moment, um, abortion was was only decriminalized in 2018 which is scary to think and shows that other countries are immune to the outrageous attack on women's reproductive rights what do you think the decision to overturn roe v wade means for women in america but not just american women also for us here in australia and in new zealand too mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's just tragic. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very angry, upset on behalf of American women. And I think it's, it's a huge indicator of where, where we're at in terms of women's rights globally and, and in the States, obviously. I think, in, in my view, I think it is just another means to control women's bodies. It's a way to shame them and also control them at the same time. I don't think it's actually really got very much to do with abortion or um, reproductive rights. Uh, I think it's a means of, yeah, a means of exerting patriarchal control. But I think the other big thing that it, it really underlines to me is that, you know, a lot of black women and indigenous women in the US are saying, you know, white women have been outraged by what's happened with Roe versus Wade because it's sort of one of their first tastes of having some rights pulled away from them in real time that Indigenous women and Black women live every day. So a lot of the white feminists that I follow in the States have rightly so been, been talking about how we need to get behind Indigenous and Black uh, women activists in the state who have been doing this work for decades already for their own communities and you know for reproductive rights and that sort of thing for all women so I think it's a really good opportunity for white women in the states to kind of feel angry you know feel feel your feelings that you're allowed to be absolutely devastated but understand that it's a good opportunity now to to realize that this is what women of color have been dealing with for decades and they have the tools and the understanding, they have the knowledge and the networks already created to try and fight this and deal with it. So yeah, but it's it's devastating. I I yeah, I find it hard to even find words for it because this Roe versus Wade has been implemented for 50 years and now it's gone. It's and I think it's a scary indicator in the in the US for what could be coming for LGBTQ people for people of color I think it's a real scary sign and hopefully Americans take it that seriously and act on it as if it's that serious because I think much worse could be coming definitely it's so scary and and if you could send us through some of those women in America you were talking about, I think I want to get behind them as well. I would really love to know their names and um, I'm sure some people listening would as well. So we'll put those in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And on that, if you have any other resources that you would suggest um, for our listeners to listen to to become more educated on Rovi Wade, but just the patriarchy and feminism, yeah, let us know because we would love to get our listeners some more resources to become even more educated about these topics definitely our last sort of question before we go into our quick fire questions is you you know I think you've touched on a lot of it already in your answers but what can we do as women to fight for rights in a better world for ourselves and all those so when I say all of those around us you know you touched on it um, like different communities are going to be affected differently by these sort of decisions um, such as mm-hmm. way. but how can we help all those around us that are oppressed in some way I think everybody has a different role in terms of how they can help um, expecting everybody to 
you know, get get out in the streets and protest and be activists all the time, especially in a global capitalist economy. I don't think it, it works. So I suppose you, my view of it is if you can use your strengths and your passions in a way that is going to further the cause of marginalised communities, I think you're on the right track. So, I mean, a perfect example is um, you guys and FEMI. You've used your, your strengths and your passions, your, your passion for running, passion for women helping others, and you've, you've created a platform that is working towards furthering the cause of a marginalised group. So that's a great example. But yeah, finding your strengths and, and using them to, to help the cause, I think on, on top of that, if you can always recognize your positionality, recognize where you are at, where you are in the intersection or system of um, inequality. So like we were, we've touched on, if you're white, if you're straight, if you're wealthy, all those sorts of things, they change your position socially, right? So they change how much privilege and how much ease of access you have to the things you need and want. So if we can always recognize yeah, our position and that the way something impacts us, it may impact somebody in the LGBTQ community, for example, far worse. So, I mean, that's the whole project of feminism, isn't it? It's recognizing your position and trying to uh, undo harm and do no further harm. So. Yeah, if you can take your strengths and passions and put them towards the feminist project. I say feminist because, you know, <laughs> I know not everybody wants to help by being a feminist, but I think everybody should be a feminist. So, yeah, those are the two big ones for me, I think. Knowing your position and um, using your strengths in the right way. I love it. And you are doing the same thing, you know, you are, uh, you a lot of your jobs have been in working in social justice areas and it's something you're so passionate about. You've helped so many people and even with your studies, you know, you're shedding light on something that probably affected a lot of women and not just in New Zealand, but all around the world and with Indigenous women, I'm sure. And I know that you won't stop there. You will keep going and keep fighting because that's <laughs> totally your passion. So I love that. Amy. And like we wouldn't mm -hmm. be able to do the work we do if we didn't have the information coming from people like yourselves who are highlighting these inequalities. Like we go off what the experts say, you know, if, if we didn't go off them, all we'd have is our own experiences, which obviously is pretty powerful too. But it's awesome to have people mm -hmm. who are actually giving your lives to helping women and helping situations better for people who are marginalized. So thank you to you. I've enjoyed this chat so much. Honestly, it's probably one of my favorite podcasts so far. <laughs> I've learned so much today, but we do have two quick fire questions before we let you go. The first mm -hmm. one is, what would you tell your younger self? So you're like your 15 year old self, what advice or guidance would you give her? Oh, that's like, is that even a quick fire question? That's such a deep question. <laughs> I'd probably, I would tell her that she's far more capable than she thinks she is, I suppose. Has far more power within her than she realises. And that the more that she can learn about herself in the world, the more she'll realise it. That's beautiful, Annie. So cool. I love so that. Cool. And... <laughs> last one what is your purpose just a real quick one you know uh what <laughs> what is your purpose on mother earth i think that my purpose is to fight 
for the cause of marginalized people. And that sounds kind of like I'm trying to toot my own horn, but I think that anyone with any privilege should be doing that. It's not something that you should be receiving praise for. We should all be doing it. So I guess I'm slowly moving towards this possibility that my purpose might be to fight uh, alongside and with Māori women, never for or speaking for or ahead of, but with and alongside. But yeah, your purpose is always evolving, right? So we'll see where it goes. <laughs> That's so cool. I feel like you're definitely fulfilling your purpose every day by doing the work you're doing. It's awesome. You guys too. <laughs> thank you so much, Annie. That was yeah, an amazing conversation. And thank you to everybody who listened today. I'm sure you also really enjoyed this conversation. If you did enjoy the conversation, give us five stars if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts. We would very much appreciate that. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can get in touch with us on Instagram at femi.co or head to our website, femi.co, and we will link Annie's bio in the show notes as well. So you can go and check out Annie. If you have any questions for Annie, I'm sure she wouldn't mind you sending them through to her as well. But thank you so much. And Esther and I will be back in your ears. Thanks, Annie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.